I'm Andalisi. Welcome to episode 22 of Essential Conversations. You're about to hear my conversation with author Adam White, who back in 2016, with the help of co-writer Barney Ailis, wrote the book Motown, The Sound of Young America. While Barry Gordy focused on the creativity at Motown, Barney Ailis oversaw distribution, getting the records played, and getting Motown paid. Here's part one of my conversation with Adam White that starts with him dispelling one of the myths about Motown. The album jackets, that was, that I think there could be a book on that alone, um, seeing how the artwork changed. Uh, when we got into, especially into the 70s, we certainly saw a difference. But um, one of the things that you and I talked about before we sat down to actually start this interview was that there was the thinking that, you know, well, they're not going to put black people right. on an album cover, right. when in fact in Motown, there were. Yes. It's sort of one of the myths. And, and, and I knew that Barney would be in a position to either validate or challenge some of those myths. And that was one of the myths that, that has sort of taken hold, that Motown didn't put its artists' pictures on the covers of the albums because it was afraid in the South particularly it would be a problem. Barney said, well, that's just nonsense. You know, I worked at Capitol Records. We put Nat King Cole on the cover of our, our albums. You know, James Brown was on the cover of his albums. Johnny Mathis, you just, you know, Miles Davis. What, what is with this? So that when you then see the Motown album jackets, you know, the first... The books there got a spread with the first seven or eight Miracles albums. Guess what? All Miracles, all album covers, with one exception, a very dumb album called <laughs> Mickey, Doing Mickey's Monkey. Got a oh, I did see it. that. That is a little bit but, of a but, dumb you know, cover. It, it just, that, Marvin Gaye's albums. There's this fabulous photo, of a close-up of Marvin's face on the cover of his first album. That was before he had a hit. Right. So it's like, you know, it's, it's good to know you've got someone who can challenge some of the myths and then explain how it worked out. And, of course, they had no one. They didn't have an art department at the beginning. Just, you know, they, they did whatever they, they could. So it, it was, it, you're right to say that that evolution of the covers tells you something both about the style and the look of the day and then about the artists themselves. Well, we should talk about Barney Ailis for a second because this is told uh, largely from his point mm-hmm. of view, yep. certainly with, with your guidance and the way you put the book together um, from a chronological standpoint, how it played out is really brilliantly done. But let's talk about his, because we, everybody knows Barry Gordy. When right. you think of Motown, you think of Barry Gordy. But nobody says, oh, yes, and Barney Ailis. Right. His influence was profound, and you bring that out in the book. So could you talk a little bit about his relationship with Barry Gordy and the role that he played in making Motown what it became? Yes. Um, uh, the, the, the short answer, and the one I love the most, is when um, you know Barney was used to be described as Barry's hatchet man, <laughs> and Barney said to me, "That was fine as long as I had a, had a hatchet." <laughs> um, but the reality is that he had experience before joining Motown that that gave the company the ability and the skills and the contacts to make it work. Um, he'd worked at Capitol Records, come up, started as a stock boy, and went up. The, the food chain at Capital, you know, doing promotion, doing sales. Then he went to Warner Brothers Records when they were just starting out, before they really could get arrested with any records. But he he just knew people. He got to know people. So he got to you know people in radio. He got to know people in distribution. And he did that for five years. And then he worked for an independent distributor in Detroit called Aurora. And so that those contacts and that experience with people all over the country, because Capital and, and Warner's were national companies, 
meant that when he met Barry and they struck it, you know, they struck up a relationship, they hit it off. He had all of that business acumen and experience to bring to Motown. And, and they didn't, you know, he didn't go join them right away. He, he started distributing a couple of Motown records. But Barry and Barney struck up a very strong personal relationship. They really liked each other's company. They used to hang out together in the week. They'd go to, you know, they'd go out to clubs and hang out. And the weekends, they'd go out with their wives. And there's a photo in the book that captures that, that very strong personal relationship between, between the two men. But they were also competitive. And as the company grew... You know, Barry was all about the creative side of the, the, the company. That was all he was interested in. And as Barney said to me, I never wanted to go into the studio and Barry never wanted to go to the distributors. But without those two elements, it wouldn't have worked. So they were very competitive as well as being close friends. They were competitive representing each side of the company. And, and it's true without, you know, one or other. I mean, the music, we know the music was extraordinary. But if those records hadn't been played and the company hadn't got paid, nothing would have happened. We wouldn't be talking about Motown today. So I think that's what Barney brought to it. But it's not very glamorous. You know, it's not, it's, it's not anything, it doesn't have the power that music can have, but it, it made the company. Well, let's talk about that for a second. Speaking of glamorous, I think that um, many of us here in Detroit and certainly around the world have probably glamorized Motown because it was this beautiful story of this little place on West Grand Boulevard that turned into this monster company and churned out these hits one after another. But the fact of the matter is, is it was an awful lot of hard work. And I want to talk about that because it seems like Barry Gordy himself was incredibly hardworking. Mm -hmm. He surrounded himself with people that did that, but there was a lot of failure before they, oh yes, there was. There was a yeah. lot of failure before um, everything took off. You know, there's the the, the legendary story about him getting the eight hundred dollar mm-hmm. loan to to start Motown. But after that, a lot of work kicked in, and it took a long time to really make this happen. Yes, and they did a lot of things, made a lot of dumb records. Um, but they, um, that you're absolutely right. I mean, the key thing at that point in the in in the company's evolution, I think, was the self sufficiency. Um, Barry, from his experience in the business before, knew how it worked. You know, he'd been a songwriter and he knew how he'd not got paid for the, the, the songs he'd written and the productions he'd done. So he learned to become dependent on as few people as possible. He, he built a company around self-sufficiency and that started in the recording studio with the band, with the Funk Brothers. So he, he, that, he knew then he'd have the core musicians and then he you know, built the artists around that. But the self-sufficiency extended to the, the publishing, the song publishing. They published their own songs. They had their own team of songwriters, you know, admittedly small at the beginning, Smokey and Janie and a few others, but, but they were all self-sufficient. And with the exception of the distribution side, the Barney's area of the business, they, they depended on no one but themselves. So they worked hard for themselves. You make this point about how hard everyone worked. That's because it was all for them. They weren't doing it for anyone else. So they were driven to succeed. And eventually they found, particularly I think with Mary Wells, Mary was the first real crossover act. The Miracles had had some great records and some hits, including one that almost bankrupted the company because they couldn't get paid for it. Um, but Which hit was that? That, that was a Shop Around. Right. So they had and that an was earlier the first? Hit. Well, that was the first, it went to number two on the pop charts. So right. it was the first big crossover record. Right. Um, 
and they couldn't get paid for it properly. I mean, you know, they, they, it was just a hassle. Um, and of course, distributors used, you know, used to do that quite a lot. They just withhold money until they thought the company was, you know, it was either going to go under, in which case they never got never paid, had to pay. or if they thought they were going to come up with more hits, then eventually, you know, they start paying them. Barning you all, this was how it worked. Um, but so Motor had its, you're right, it had its tough times at the beginning. Uh, but Mary had three successive top 10 crossover hits. So that was when it's like, oh, okay, so this place is going, uh, is making things happen. And that, you know, Smokey's songs, Smokey's production, that was when they really started to motor and began to have more confidence in themselves as a, as a creative team and then as a business. And then 63 was a year when it really started to, to motor, you know, with Martha and the Vandellas, um, Marvin Gaye's hits, uh, you know, they, they just, year by year, they got better and better, but they were working as hard as they could possibly be. Let's talk about the importance of Smokey being there. Um, a pivotal artist in his own right, yep. um, but he was another behind-the-scenes person who I would think made an incredible difference in the momentum that started Motown. Yes, and also remember this was someone who Barry could implicitly trust. He, he, you know, the friendship and the trust they had was a foundation stone of, of the company. But yes, Smokey's creativity on behalf of the Miracles and then for other artists, and as I said, Mary Wells in particular, were absolutely essential to it. And you listen to those lyrics that Smokey wrote. I mean, you know, I'll try something new, any of those songs. I mean, to this day, they stand up to, to analysis and, and they, are, they were poetry. But it was tough. You know, let's uh, particularly in the early '60s, before, because th- those early '60s period was really a bit of a, 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 a you know, you can't say a, a, a creative desert, but it wasn't quite clear where music was going. You know, the first flush of rock and roll had been and gone. Elvis was in the army, all of that stuff. So until the Beatles sort of rebooted the business, there were lots of different trends going on in music. But the one thing that was constant and growing was the power of R and B. You know, the records were getting better. They were getting stronger. They were getting more imaginative. And Motown was part of that. You know, Atlantic was part of it. Um, the records were getting more sophisticated. And, of course, young white kids wanted to hear this stuff because right. it was so dynamic and exciting. So radio stations, black radio stations, began to get bigger audiences because these kids were tuning into this stuff. And so all of this played out at, at this time to Motown's advantage. But the consistency of the of, of the music as as they went sort of 62, 63, 64, um, including you know the work that that Smokey did, absolutely essential to that that evolution. And then along came the Supremes. Uh, this is in some ways very self serving uh, because Marvin Gaye is my favorite singer. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what you learned about him through the interviews that you've done. Maybe things that we don't necessarily know. There's a lot of things we do know. But um, he seemed to be a complicated man with certainly his demons to struggle with throughout yes. his life. Yes, and and almost from the beginning. I mean, it was complicated because, you know, he'd married one of the boss's sisters. So there was a bit, you know, a bit, bit difficult. And that, of course, meant it was quite difficult for Barry to exert the kind of control over Marvin that he could exert over his other artists. It was a bit difficult 
And Marvin was a rebel at, at some point. I mean, I found an old, in like a 1965 radio interview that Marvin did. And, you know, he was out there in 1965. You're thinking, he's talking like this. You know, in 1965, pop stars who were supposed to give, you know, proper, not proper interviews, but just simple interviews, you know, what they had for breakfast or mm-hmm. what clothes you're wearing or something. And he was out there really being quite thoughtful and, di- and difficult in the sense that he wasn't playing the game. He didn't play the game from early on. And as he became more successful, of course, he, you know, he had, there was less incentive for him to play the game. And there were more clashes with Barry. And Marvin's relationship with Barney was strong because he didn't have the family connection and because they liked each other. In fact, you know, there's, there's a photo that we didn't use in the book because the quality wasn't good enough. But there's a picture of Marvin at the piano at Barney's house with his kids surrounding him just playing the piano for the kids. So they, they had a really good relationship. And Marvin was indeed a complicated guy. And one of the stories I like about that, and it, 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 there are some contradictions in it, is that when, after Tammy Terrell's death, Marvin was really not making any music, Barney and, 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 and the sales team needed a new Marvin Gaye album. You know, it's kind of like it's, the, it's, it's coming up to the fourth quarter, we need a new record. So what they did was put together a, a Greatest Hits, another Greatest Hits album compilation. And... On the sleeve of, on the front cover of the album, there's a picture of Marvin, a cartoon of Marvin depicted as Superman. And he's got a girl, you know, on his arm and they're flying over radio station WHIT. And Barney said to me, when that record came out, Marvin hated the cover. It demeaned him, it diminished him, it made a joke of him. And Marvin called Barry and, you know, yelled and screamed about, how could you do this to me, put this this album... Barry called Barney and said, look, you know, we, we've got to do something about this. Barney then got a call from Marvin and Barney said, OK, right, well, um, we'll, you know, we're pressing you cover. This first run is out there. We're pressing you cover with the second run. He never did. The album, there was never a second cover of that album. And the guy who was responsible for that cover art, a man who was the head of, of graphics for Motown at that point, a guy called Tom Schlesinger, well-known Detroit promo guy, in that job, and he kind of took the fall for it. Um, coincidentally, he had also, in that same album release, there's a, a um, Stevie's signed, sealed, and delivered album. It's a great album. It's the first album actually he produced on himself. But the cover is, is Stevie in a box. I mean, there's Stevie sitting in a you know in a cardboard box, not really very you know commensurate with his emerging talent as a musician. And I think that Stevie. You know, you could say, well, he couldn't see it, but it doesn't matter. He he knew he didn't like that image of him, and that was another nail in Tom Schlesinger's coffin as the head of graphics for Motown. Right. But then subsequently, I got a, a, um, a note from Jan Gay from Marvin's second wife um, when that story about um, Marvin was in the book, and she said, actually, Marvin loved the Superman cover. So you kind of think, you know, and in a way that's probably the contradictions. One minute it was demeaning and, 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 you know, this wasn't how he wanted to be depicted. And the other time it's like, wow, this is pretty cool. I'm Superman. (laughs) So those are the kind of inside stories when you talk to someone like Barney Ellis, the backroom believers, as I call them. You get these, these wonderful tales, insights into artists, the contradictions, 
um, as well as the way the business evolved, that for the most part I haven't been out there before. And that, that was the goal, to add to the sum of knowledge rather than repeat what we all know. Coming up in part two of my conversation with Adam White, we talk about race, Motown artists performing in the South, and what Martin Luther King Jr. said to Barry Gordy about Motown. As newsrooms across the country close their doors, independent and unbiased journalism is more crucial than ever. We rely on you just like you rely on us. This spring fundraiser, join us in protecting public media. Your support keeps us thriving. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap donate in our mobile app. I'm Andalisi, and here's the conclusion of my conversation with Adam White. You talk about, and you, there was no way to avoid talking about race throughout this book because of the period of time that mm-hmm. we're talking about, and it's put through the filter of music. Yes. There were things that were constants, which were that, you know, there were places in the country where these Motown artists would go, and they couldn't right. stay in a hotel. Yes. It's hard to believe now because it doesn't seem all that long ago. The issue of now you have all of these black artists who are performing, white kids want to hear them. And it was a very interesting time when you put it through that filter. So I want you to talk about a little bit about um, music, radio, and how all of that worked to push things forward. And then I want to talk about the Beatles in the UK because Mm -hmm. once once Motown went international, it was the UK that that was instrumental in making that happen. Yes, it was. Um, well, it, it, you know, the Motown Review of 62 was, was a key moment in, in, in the company's development when they put that package tour together. They could put all of their artists on one road show, um, you know, and we know its history and we know some of the stories about, the, you know, the racial um, turbulence they encountered, particularly in the South. Um, but what, what struck me about, in particular, about some of those experiences was... Um, was what Dick Clark did when you know, the, the Motown show ran its course and, and was a big success. But then they started putting some of their artists on on other people's tours, and they went on a, a Dick Clark and the Supremes, of course, famously joined right. the Dick Clark summer show in in '64. But they hadn't been on his show yet. He, he, they no, never played his show. Actually, right? never. No. They, right. They, they, the Supremes were never on American Bandstand. Um, but uh, when Dick's caravan of black stars and white stars went on the road anytime they got to a town and they got to a hotel if that hotel would not take all the artists they moved on dick would say right if you're not going to put up you know everyone then we're moving off to another hotel so i think those those stories you know you you try not to make them dominate the narrative but they underpin it and Mm -hmm. show both you know the, the 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 racial attitudes of the time, and then the individuals who tried to do something about it. Dick Clark was one of them. Early, Ed Sullivan was another. I mean, he you know his his refusal to to work um, in any kind of you know seeing color was well known. He even wrote a piece for Ebony magazine in the fifties about that. But Ed, um, Ed Sullivan was important because he put the Supremes on, and after this was after their third number one hit. And he put the Supremes on the Ed Sullivan show, you know, huge audience, huge Sunday night TV audience. And there were these three great looking girls singing Come See About Me. And that was the moment, I think, that changed Motown. You know, we know that the Supremes changed Motown because Where Did Our Love Go was a smash and then they had all those hits. But the Supremes on television changed Motown. They realized they had an asset 
that, that you know, the world wanted to see, certainly that America wanted to see, by being on that show. And you know, the Supremes were regulars throughout the 60s on Ed Sullivan because he loved them. He knew the audience wanted that. That made a real difference because there were these three great-looking girls dressed stylishly. I mean, you know, to begin with, they were young and a bit gauche, but their style evolved, and Motown realized they had that asset. And Barney and Berry worked because they thought, right, we've, we've got something here that's about music and style more than just about an R&B record. And they worked that very cleverly. And Mary Wilson told me this amazing story um, of a Supremes incident several years later when they were you know, even bigger stars and they were playing uh, nightclubs and they were in a Miami resident, in a, in a Miami hotel for a couple of weeks. And during one of those shows or after one of those shows, a member of the audience, a, a white woman came up to Mary and said, oh, you know, I love the Supremes. You guys are fantastic. Whenever you're on Ed Sullivan, I let my family watch you. And you just think, I mean, you can't believe that someone would think like that or say that. Right. But it's those sort of just those lines that illustrate the challenge, the difficulty um, that that company faced, uh, both in its own way and then in, in, in the landscape. Um, and the most telling remark, in a way, um, was, was something that Barry Gordy said, Martin Luther King said to him, he said, Motown was responsible for emotional integration before intellectual integration. I think that, that too, is a very powerful uh, and accurate statement. Boy, can you imagine somebody saying that to you, oh. uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. saying those Correct. words? You would ride on those words for quite some time Yes. to continue yes. to work yeah. at this company yeah. to make it what it became. Yeah. And of course, Motown put out oh, several Martin Luther King. I mean, actually, Motown released the I Have a Dream speech before anyone really knew what it was outside Detroit. You know, he did he did an early version of that speech in Detroit, in Cobo, Cobo Hall. Yes. And then you know, then went on to do it in DC. And Motown released albums of both both occasions. And the first this is a fanboy getting excited. Please <laughs> forgive. The first gatefold album sleeve that Motown ever did was Martin Luther King in Detroit, that that march down Woodward in Detroit, because you open the, the LP jacket and there's this incredible photo of the thousands, tens of thousands of people marching down Woodward. Just, just amazing. Let's uh, change our focus for a little bit and get a little bit more um, uh, behind the scenes in terms of how this Motown machine worked. Now, one of the things I want to ask you about was the number of different labels mm -hmm. that were you know, uh, created yeah. out of the Motown machine, if you will. Yeah. Why that happened, and there were so many of them, and how that whole, why that worked that way. Yes. Well, for the most part, you know, when they started to get hits regularly, um, you know, the first label was Tamla, and then, and then they, um, really with Mary Wells on, on the Motown label. Um, but as they started to get more hits, they became aware that, that they were on quite a lot of radio programmers' playlists, all you know, all more or less on one or two labels, and there was a concern that it would appear as if, you know, the, the programmers were playing too much Motown and mm -hmm. they didn't want to be seen to be doing that, as if they were concerned that maybe there was some sort of backhanded payoff and so on and so forth. Um, so they created these labels for, you know, another identity, so that people wouldn't necessarily think that that it was all Motown. Um, it seems a bit simplistic looking back on it because, you know, radio DJs and so on are smart people. They know where all of this comes from. Mm -hmm. But 
There's a difference between the DJ. In the early 60s, of course, the DJs chose the music rather than program directors, as you know very well. Um, but, you know, the, the DJs knew the story, but the, you know, the station owner didn't necessarily know what, what a Motown and a Tamler and a Gordy right. and a VIP and a Soul was. So they could kind of like, you know, make it, make it look that they weren't playing too many records by the one company. But there's some funny stories to that. Um, you know, there was the Weed label, Weed Records. That is hilarious. Put out the one album by Chris <laughs> Clark, and the label slogan was, All your favorites are on Weed. And Chris Clark, she was a white artist. Yes, she was. On Motown. Did they not know what to do with her or where to put her or how to market her? Did Barney and Barry have, was it just a challenge to do that? I think it was a challenge. I mean, the records are great. If you just listen to, you know, Do Right Baby, Do Right or, or, or Love's Gone Bad, amazing records. So you do think, why didn't it work? Why couldn't it work? And I'm not sure... Barney even has been able to, to say that. Um, so I don't think it was for lack of effort, but there was an awful lot going on at Motown. The, the irony, of course, with for me anyway, with Chris Clark, is it was um, Chris Clark I saw on the same show that Gladys Knight in Gladys Knight in the Pits, Bobby Taylor in the Vancouver's, and Chris Clark came to London December the 3rd, 1967, which was the show after which I met Barney in the pub in, in, in Shaftesbury Avenue. But the funny thing about Chris, and this actually isn't a story I've told very often, is that, um, you know, I love those records of hers. I mean, I, you know, she was just wonderful. So she, she opened the show, and, you know, she's a tall California blonde. So, you know, and, and pretty eye-popping. Uh, uh, you know, there I was a teenager in the audience, and she'd come to London, and she'd obviously spotted that girls in London at that point in 1967 wore their skirts a bit shorter than necessarily their counterparts in California. So Chris had obviously, you know, t- taken an executive decision to hike up her skirt a little bit <laughs> to be in line with fashion, except, of course, she had a suntan. So there was a bit <laughs> of white skin just there. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm a, what am I, a, a 17 or 18-year-old teenager thinking, ah, you know, just watching this stuff. It's a silly story, but but it, it just, it, it, if anything, it's indication of the devotion Ocean and the ardor that, that a lot of us Brits had for, for Motown artists because you couldn't turn on the TV and see them. You know, they weren't in the club down the road. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, we didn't live in Detroit. You know, to, to you, perhaps the, these artists were there right. all the time. Just like for me in Britain, you know, you turn on the TV or the radio and you've got the Beatles and the Stones. You're like, oh, no. <laughs> Enough already. But, but no, who are these Motown artists? They are just something exotic. You speak of uh, the Beatles. We should talk about that for a second. Um, so the Beatles and Dusty Springfield were ambassadors for the Motown yes, sound, Motown absolutely. music and the artists. If it wasn't for them, their um, break into the international market might have been halted entirely. Yes. And the other thing is watching the Beatles and Motown artists duke it out at the top of the chart, mm-hmm. which we forget mm-hmm. that they were both up there knocking each other out of these spots at yes. the same time. Yes. I mean, look, you know, those are the, arguably the two exciting trends of, of, of 64. You know, the Beatles exploded and changed the world at the beginning of 64 when they went on Ed Sullivan. But in the course of that year, Motown really hit its stride with three consecutive number ones by the Supremes. Um, Mary Wells, My Guy, huge hit, right in the middle of that British invasion. So, and, and, and in a way, if you listen to the records, they're not alike. They don't sound alike. They're completely different um, you know, f- no, I can't say forms of music, but there's a different component to each of them. And yet they both, 
you know, they respected each other, depended on each other. And the Beatles' evangelism about Motown, and they'd been hearing these records for four years at that point. You know, they put Barrett Strong's money mm-hmm. in their set in 1960. They were blown away by some of these Motown records because they came from Liverpool, which was a port, and the sailors used to come back into Liverpool with records from America. So they got to hear these records there, and they began to talk about the artists. And so when the Beatles began to talk about Mary Wells and Smokey Robinson and the Miracles and so on, that registered, and I think it gave... It gave people an awareness, both in the U.S. and, and, and abroad, certainly in the U.K., of these artists. And people got curious. Who are they? What, what are these? You know. And then the Beatles did three Motown songs on one of their early albums. And not only did that you know, sort of spread the word about Motown, it also represented income for Motown because they published those songs. So, so those sales, especially Beatles records, you know, those sales oh, exactly. represented ample royalties for Motown that helped fund the company. Um, so yes, that, that, that sort of seal of approval, it was the same with Dusty. When Dusty Springfield, all she would do, she'd talk about Motown artists before she'd talk about herself. You know, she, she wanted to talk about Martha and the Vandellas and, and all of those artists. But it gave them that extra added sort of legitimacy or credibility. And so you'd get people in the media and, 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 and in the audience saying, oh, well, okay, Dusty digs it. Well, I, I should listen, make an effort. And then when Dusty fronted the TV show in the UK, uh, when the Motown Package tour came over, it was her wish to be seen to be the, the you know the host of that show that got the program made. Because if a British star, and she was this young, exciting, up-and-coming star in, in, in 64, 65, if a British star hadn't said, yes, I want to front this, this show uh, featuring the Motown artists, it, it wouldn't have been made. Um, so she was absolutely uh, an evangelist, made all the difference along with the Beatles. 